welcome to Season 3 of the Public Diplomat Dialogues. I'm Professor Guy Gulan, and today I'm very excited to have as a guest Boaz Dvir, who is a documentary filmmaker of a recent movie I watched on PBS. The name of the movie is A Wing and a Prayer, and it tells a story of how a bunch of World War II veterans, along with some American Jews, a couple of Israelis, scrambled together and put together a nation's first Air Force. This is a very controversial movie, very interesting, very exciting. For those of you who like historical documentaries, you're going to definitely want to check this one out. But before we have Boaz Dvir come and join us, let's take a listen to the film. It's hard to believe that only three years after the Holocaust, Jews again faced annihilation. In 1948, five Western-equipped armies mobilized to invade the new Jewish state in Palestine. The Palestinian Jews had no weapons, no military planes, and no allies, not even the United States. Only a miracle or an ingenious plan could have saved them. Buzz Veer, welcome to the Public Diplomat Dialogues. Hey, Guy. Thank you for having me. Okay, Buzz, A Wing and a Prayer is doing great on PBS. More than a million people have seen this movie so far. What drove you to uh, make a movie about the Israeli Air Force? I was interviewing my grandfather about his life story, and in the middle of it, he told me this particular tale. He, he was a Holocaust survivor, married another Holocaust survivor, and they had twins. They were in a DP camp, you know, a displaced person camp in Italy after the war. When my grandfather said, let's go to Palestine, let's go, let's help create a Jewish state. And my grandmother said, are you crazy? Are you, are you out of your mind? <laughs> we just survived one Holocaust. You want to sign up for another Holocaust? She said, let's go to America. So when they boarded a ship on the Mediterranean, my grandfather told my grandma that they were going to America. And then <laughs> when she didn't see the Statue of Liberty and instead saw Israeli flags, and they were in Haifa, she became a little suspicious, but she didn't have time to get angry because they shipped him off to fight right away. And he finds himself in the Negev Desert with his platoon, excited, right, to defend himself finally, and his people, and his family, but they had no weapons. They had maybe two or three rifles for 30 soldiers. So my grandfather figured, I'm gonna die here. And then one day, the way he describes it, it was miraculously, these weapons arrive, and he grips his rifle, he holds it against the sun, he's so excited. He looks closely at the medal. What does he see? A German eagle. One of those eagles that has little swastikas in its talons. So telling the story, my grandfather stops, looks at me and goes, Boaz, do you know how we got Nazi weapons? I had no idea. So I told him, let me find out. I was a journalist, give me a couple of days. Well, it took me 10 years, but the film is an answer to my grandfather's question. All right, so let's, let's give the listeners a little bit more of a background. Um, your um, grandfather, it sounds like he was an infantry, but your film is about the, the Israeli Air Force in particular. Why did you focus on that particular branch? Very simply because that's how Israel got those Nazi weapons. You see, in 1948, Israel had no weapons. They had very few, actually and uh, not enough to survive any war, much less one fought against five militaries, several of which were equipped and trained by the West. And so they were going to lose the war, basically, I mean, really. And, and they desperately needed weapons. This operation that's depicted in a wing and a prayer 
brought weapons to Israel. The only country willing to sell Israel any weapons at the time was Czechoslovakia. It was landlocked. This was secret. This was illegal. You needed big planes that these guys brought, the guys in this operation, brought to Czechoslovakia and airlifted those weapons out of Czechoslovakia and into Israel. Now, it just so happens that those weapons that the Czechs sold Israel, all of them, every bullet, every rifle, was Nazi surplus weaponry. To add a twist to the crazy story. <laughs> yeah, uh, with that irony, of course, right? So uh, your film really depicts a story of individuals. This is not a movie about uh, historical movements as much as a bunch of guys who wanted to change the world. One of the, the lead characters in your film is Al Schwimmer. Can you tell us about Al Schwimmer? Al Schwimmer was born in New York, grew up in Connecticut during the Depression, and didn't have any kind of a strong connection to Judaism or Zionism at all. Was an ordinary fellow, you know, he was a flight engineer, did his duty in World War II, worked for TWA as a flight engineer after the war. There was really nothing in his life that indicated he would one day change the Middle East. But he wanted to get involved after visiting concentration camps, former concentration camps in Europe, and seeing that these concentration camps in Europe were still being used to house Jews. These Jews had nowhere to go. And so he wanted to do something about that. And his idea was to bring them by planes. They were trying to get into Palestine at the time by boarding ships on the Mediterranean. And they were almost always intercepted by the British who blocked them from coming into Palestine. So I'll swim a figure, let's fly them in. And that way we can help them. And he knew he could buy these big planes in the U.S. for cheap because the U.S. was getting rid of them. The U.S. didn't need so many planes after World War II and was offloading surplus planes for $5,000 a piece. That was his plan, and he came and proposed that to the Jewish agency. That's how it began. But as the negotiations continued, by the time they figured out, yeah, you know, Al Schwimmer is okay, we can work with him, they checked him out. There's a guy named Adolf Schwimmer with a German name. They had to check him out. By the time they figured that, yeah, he's a good guy, we can, we can make this happen, they had much bigger needs than flying in refugees. They needed to fly in weapons. So that's what they had him do. And just to give our listener a little bit of background, we're speaking about uh, the period before the establishment of Israel, when uh, Palestine was under a British mandate. The British were trying to balance uh, the pressures from the Arabs and from the Jews who were living there. And there was... Uh, pretty much an embargo on any immigrant coming into Israel. The British didn't want to take sides. Your film, may people may perceive it as a film about the Israeli-Arab conflict, but really, from what I've seen, it's a movie about uh, American citizens versus the American government. Can you give a little background about why this is a focus of the movie? Absolutely. I'd love to answer that question. Let me just elaborate on your formal question first just a bit, uh, just to paint a clearer picture for, for the listeners. So the story takes place in 1948, but you have to really kind of go back a little to 1947, when the United Nations says, hey, England, get out of Palestine, get out of there. We're going to take this land. We're going to divide it in two. We're going to give one half to the Arabs, one half to the Jews. The Jews says, oh, thank you. We'll take this half. Thank you very much, of course. The Arabs say, why should we take the other half? 
It's not fair. We make up, Arabs make up two-thirds of the population of Palestine, number one. Number two, we're not responsible for the Holocaust. That was a European atrocity. Why are we being punished? Number three, why do we need to compromise anyway? There's no reason. I mean, let's face it. As soon as England leaves and the Jews declare independence, we'll kill them all. We'll drive them into the sea and take the whole piece of land. That's the setting against which Al Schwemer and his men raced to prevent what they viewed, they viewed as an imminent second Holocaust. They believed that the 600,000 Jews living in Palestine were going to die. And for good reason, they believed that, because that's exactly what the Arab leaders were saying they were going to do. I think we should uh, listen to a clip from the movie that deals with this. The attitude of the United States toward Israel today is totally different than the attitude in 1948. The American people were always friendly to Israel, but the State Department was hostile and was virtually an enemy, tried in every way possible to keep arms and volunteers from going to Israel. The State Department aimed to build strong ties with the Arab world, which had the oil and the Suez Canal, and to appease England, a crucial partner in the escalating Cold War. The State Department went to great lengths to try to reverse the UN partition plan and abort the Jewish state. The proposal of the United States government to suspend all efforts to implement the partition plan is a shocking reversal of its position. We are at an utter loss to understand the reason for this amazing reversal. Okay, good stuff. So now let's go back to the issue of Americans versus American, American citizens versus the American government. What was the position of the American government and why did they have such an objection to Al Schwimmer and his crew? So the U.S. government in 1947, when the U.N. voted on this plan to divide Palestine and make a Jewish state, but also allow the Arabs to get the second half, U.S. voted for that. They voted yes, but then quickly changed their mind actually, and saw it as a mistake. The State Department in particular, which was led by George Marshall, Secretary of State George Marshall, you know, the mastermind of the Marshall Plan, saw the Jewish state as problematic for several reasons, uh, one of which is that they didn't think it would survive, you know, they didn't think it had a chance. But the other reasons were more straightforward, and that is, look, the Jews had nothing. The Arabs had oil, the Arabs had money. The Arabs had a large population. They had the Suez Canal. They had a lot to offer, whereas the Jews in Palestine really, again, had nothing. Also, keep in mind that the most important ally for the U.S. at the time, in, in the 40s, was England. By far. I mean, England was the crucial partner in, in the Second World War, and then the crucial partner in the escalating Cold War. And England was firmly entrenched in the Arab camp. In fact, British officers not only trained the Jordanians, they led them into battle. And, and England not only equipped the Arab militaries, they trained them and helped them fly, etc. So the U.S. looked at the situation, particularly the State Department, and said, it is in our best interest to side with the Arabs. It's in our best interest to side with England. And it's our best interest to prevent the creation of the Jewish state, which can only give us problems. Also, they feared that this war, this war that was going to happen between the Jews and the Arabs could invite the Soviets to gain a foothold 
in the Middle East, and they wanted to stop that. So America wanted to side with England, side with the Arabs, and also prevent this war, and so did everything they could, but failed to stop the launch of the Jewish state. Part of that was to make sure that no Americans provided any kind of substantial help to Israel. Okay, the FBI so- was set on making sure that this didn't happen. You had many Americans at the time trying to send Israel weapons, pistols, <laughs> someone tried to send a tank. I mean, you name it. Americans tried to gather this material, put it on ships, and actually sell it to the Middle East and give it to the Jews in Palestine. And the FBI would stop these shipments in New York, in Miami, and other places, confiscate the weapons, put people away, and make sure that it didn't happen. So your film really depicts how Al Schwimmer, specifically with his crew, uh, brought airplanes from the United States to Czechoslovakia straight into the Israeli War of Independence. Right, exactly. I mean, Al Schwimmer was one of those Americans who wanted to help, but he had a master plan that was brilliant. And that is to take these planes and use them to create a fictitious airline and help Israel. I mean, it grew from there. His original idea grew and grew. Not only did they use these planes to fly in weapons, but really, I mean, his operation also helped them train fighter pilots. And these fighter pilots flew former Nazi planes that helped the Israelis gain control over the skies and really, in a sense, gave them, gave them if not the edge, the means to win. Because... As long as the Egyptians and Syrians controlled the sky, Israel stood little chance of winning, no matter how well it was doing on the ground. And these Americans, part of the Al-Shwimmer operation, who flew these Nazi surplus planes that were no good, by the way, but the fighter pilots were great. They flew up, they drove away the Egyptians, they drove away the Syrians, they gained control over the skies, and that made all the difference for Israel. On May 29th, in 1948, uh, uh, 10,000 Egyptian troops were a few miles away from Tel Aviv and would have gone into Tel Aviv the next day, the very next day, and probably ended the war and ended the creation of the Jewish state. If it wasn't for four fighter pilots flying four Messerschmitt planes and surprising the Egyptians who had no idea that Israelis had any kind of fighter planes and bombing the heck out of them, and stopping them in their tracks. And that was it. That was as far as the Egyptians or any Arabs ever got in any war with Israel. And yeah, it, it literally saved Israel. And, and your film, really, I mean, wow, this could be a film starring Leo DiCaprio. This could be, you know, a Hollywood kind of movie. You made the historical documentary. Uh, whatever happened to the Americans who got in trouble with the FBI? I, I heard their passports were taken away. They stood trial. Yeah, so... 11 of them went to trial, 11 of these men, uh, the key ones in particular. And Al Schwimmer and nine of his men stood trial in Los Angeles and probably would have gone to prison. In fact, they were facing, he himself was facing six, seven years in prison. Uh, The others maybe a few years each. If it wasn't for a technicality, I'm not sure if we have the time to get into it, but there was a kind of an interesting technicality that happened. You want to know what it is? Yeah. Oh, okay. So they're in trial and they're picking the jury. And this man comes up as a potential juror and he doesn't seem Jewish. He appears to be Spanish. And they're about to dismiss him, the, defend, the defense lawyers. 
when a friend of their defendants, a friend of Al Schwimmerin and guys from Israel, who was a student at UCLA, whispers in the attorney's ear, no, no, put this guy on the jury. Why? Because a week earlier, this guy gave a pro-Israel speech in a class that their friend was taking at UCLA. So they put him on the jury, and this guy hung the jury and would only agree in the end to convict Al Schwimmer and eight of the nine other guys only if they wouldn't send them to jail, that they would only give them, you know, a slap on the wrist and a fine, <laughs> which is what they ended up getting. You know, now, uh, Buzz, watching this film today, <clears throat> you know, in 2016, where U.S.-Israel relations are so um, well-founded, I mean, such a great history of an alliance between the two nations. It's almost hard to believe that at the beginning, the United States was not a friend. And actually, from your film, I learned that the Russians were much more favorable. Yeah, it was the Russians who brought the UN vote in the first place. The, the, the country that proposed the idea of creating a Jewish state was not the United States. <laughs> it was Russia. Russia did that. And then Russia allowed the Czech to sell those weapons to Israel. It's not a coincidence. And Russia made an overture, a diplomatic overture, an official one to David Ben-Gurion, the prime minister, the founding prime minister of Israel, saying, hey, let's be allies. In Russia's mind, Israel was the best possible ally, mainly because it was a socialist country created by Russians. And, and David Ben-Gurion, God bless him, even though he knew that the U.S. was against him, he was visionary enough to say no. That was not enough to win over the Americans. It wasn't until Kennedy in the early 60s that really Israel and America started to dance diplomatically and America started to trickle in some weapon sales. And it really wasn't until 1967 till Israel had an amazing victory and proved itself worthy of being an ally of America that America finally stepped forward and said, okay, let's team up. Very interesting stuff, Boaz. Um, so we posted um, a link and a preview to A Wing and a Prayer, the PBS one, on our website, the Public Diplomat website. But if people want to follow you, if people want to learn more about the film, can they still watch it on PBS? What can you tell us? PBS has it until April of uh, 2017, and many stations around the country show it quite often. I often hear from people, they show it on prime time and other times. And I, I'm even told that if people really want to watch it, they can call their local PBS station and ask for it. PBS is also selling the DVDs for anyone who's interested. And I, I think I provided that number for you if people want to look it up on your site. Mm -hmm. And that's another way people can buy the DVD. It's a longer version. Director's Cut it's got five bonus sequences, etc. At the end of the PBS two-year contract, um, my auto distributor will take it over, Green Apple Entertainment, and has distribution plans already set for that. And people will be able to watch it in a variety of other means, probably more digital means. All right. Boaz Dvir, documentary filmmaker, Penn State University faculty member, and a longtime friend of mine. Thank you for joining us today, the Public Diplomat Dialogues. And for those of you who are with us for three seasons of our podcast already, we really appreciate your help and support. If you love this podcast, if you love public diplomacy, nation branding, and all things international, please continue to follow us. Tell your friends about The Public Diplomat. Uh, we're on Twitter at public underscore diplomat. 
Bozvir, thank you once again. Thank you, Guy Golan. It was a pleasure. Okay, have a great one, everybody. Back in the U.S., Al wanted to get his hands on that first B-17 he had purchased. But after taking his money, the Air Force denied him access to the bomber. For Al, this was a mere inconvenience. It was on a military field, but we bought it. We owned it. We supposed to scrap it. We had a friend that worked at that airfield. He was a mechanic, and he got the airplane prepared for us. We gave him money, and he paid to have them put gas in it there. Along with one of his pilots, Leo Gardner, Al flew to the grounded B-17 location. Neither one of us had ever flown a B-17. As they drove up in uniform, the fellow who was standing at the gate said, you're going to the party. Well, they said, oh yeah, well, he said, well, it's over there. We got in there and we found the switches with flashlights and so forth, because we want to turn any lights on. Started up, the two of us taxied it out. The tower, we heard him. Don't take off now. Please identify yourself. We went off. 